Hello, welcome to Theory Lab, the American Cancer Society's research podcast. I'm Joe Cotter. I'm here with Dr. Susanna Greer. Hey, Susanna, how's it going? It's going awesome, Joe. So you just spoke with Dr. Yusuf Zafar. He's an associate professor of medicine at Duke University Medical Center, and he's a practicing oncologist. He treats patients with GI cancers. And like all the best physician scientists, of course, his experiences with patients is what helps drive his research. And in his case, he's interested in the cost of cancer care, specifically like the patient level impact of the cost of cancer care and what he calls financial toxicity. So Susanna, he was talking about like, you know, things from the patient perspective that I had never even thought about before. Yeah, I kind of feel like a jerk after listening. (laughs) to Yusuf um, because his I guess the the crux of what he shares with us is that small burdens in the clinical setting really add up so I mean it, we always think about the cost of drugs and co-pays and um, but then he began to say but Susanna what about paying for parking or child care when you have to go have chemo or time away from work I mean the list goes on and on and on and so I felt like a jerk, but it, it, one of his messages is that it's awareness, awareness of the financial struggles and how these costs impact patient care. And then he gives us this really cool tutorial on the Affordable Care Act. I, I finally really understand Medicaid expansion. And then his ideas on what else we need to do as a community because insurance isn't the only answer right insurance doesn't cover parking so um it was a really great conversation i think you're gonna love it hi yusuf how are you i am great thank you so much for having me susanna absolutely we are really interested to hear from you today this is a topic that i don't know a ton about so i'm excited to be a learner um so let's level set not only for our listeners but also for me, um, help us understand in your mind, how would you define financial toxicity? I think of financial toxicity as a descriptor of the patient experience. So I think about, I think about it any time that a um, patient experiences um, cost related to his or her cancer care, whether that's a cost of drug or a copay or Um, time off work or parking or any of the multitudes of costs that our patients face, anytime those costs um, result in harm to the patient, that in my mind is the financial toxicity of cancer care. And I think that term is useful because it puts it at the level of the physical toxicities that our patients experience. So our patients experience nausea or pain or diarrhea. Those are all physical toxicities when they can't pay for their cancer care. That's a financial toxicity. I love that. I mean, the the combination of of the two is is really impactful. And you're right; it elevates our understanding of a cancer patient's experience. All the things that we're more comfortable thinking about, like pain and nausea, are only exacerbated by all of these other issues um, that you mentioned around financial hardships that cancer patients may face. Along along those lines, one of the things when I was reading about you that you said was, we must make the invisible visible. Can you uh, maybe expand on what you meant about that? 
when I, when I said that, um, I believe that was uh, at um, the ASCO annual meeting last year um, during a uh, plenary discussion talk. And I was saying that in the context of, again, um, our patient experiences, where our patients are coming from, how, um, where our patients are from and who they are actually impacts the care that they get. And in how in many cases um, that disparity or differential in care, whether it's because of race or income or ethnicity or language or, or any of the millions of other things that can, that can result in disparities, um, is not often at the forefront of our minds um, while we're treating a patient. So if I'm, if I'm treating a patient and um, maybe they're getting, experiencing more uh, symptoms from their treatment than I would have expected, um, maybe it's because they're not taking their anti-nausea medication because they can't afford it. But I just haven't asked them whether or not they, they're able to afford that supportive care medication. There's, there's so much that our patients go through um, that is much more than their diagnosis, their tumor, um, that we have to find a way to account for some way or another. One of the things I just want to circle back is that when I asked you about that quote, you said that this was a part of a presentation that you gave at ASCO. And all of our listeners won't know what ASCO is mm. and who would be there. So um, why were you sharing this message with this particular audience? ASCO is the American Society of Clinical Oncology, and the ASCO annual meeting is a, oh, I don't know, 40 to 50,000 person uh, meeting that happens every year in Chicago of um, oncologists, um, of um, other stakeholders within the oncology uh, uh, industry um, who all gather together and share and present um, new research and groundbreaking research. And um, there is uh, maybe four or five presentations out of thousands that are sort of highlighted up to the most important uh, for the meeting for that year. And the number one um, research project that was presented um, at the ASCO annual meeting uh, in 2019 was about this very topic. It was about um, how health policy, about how Medicaid and expansion of Medicaid eligibility across the U.S. Um, has impacted disparities in cancer treatment. Um, I was fortunate enough to uh, discuss the abstract, the study after it was presented. So the study was presented by the main author, and then I um, was delighted to be the discussant, so putting the results in perspective um, for the audience of of thousands, many of whom might not have ever thought about Medicaid before. So it was a daunting task, but it was a really important study, and I was I was really delighted to be a part of it, uh, of the discussion, not the study. I think that you've touched on a lot of things that our listeners are going to be really interested mm -hmm. in. Maybe let's just back up and say, are there parts of the Affordable Care Act that impacted cancer care and services and were related to financial toxicity? Yes, um, and I think there were both um, positive and negative impacts in regards to coverage, access, and specifically financial toxicity. So let me talk about that a little bit. So in terms of what I personally believe was a um, strong positive impact of the Affordable Care Act on patients with cancer, 
was access. So we know that um, over 20 or 25 million people have access to insurance um, after the Affordable Care Act who did not um, prior to it. Um, so just, you know, getting insurance access and having, um, you know, being able to step through the door of that clinic because you knew you had insurance, that was a huge step. Um, another um, aspect of the ACA um, that I think is particularly important to patients with chronic illnesses like cancer um, is that as a result of the ACA, insurance companies um, were not allowed to deny patients coverage because of pre-existing conditions. So that means if a patient already knows they have a diagnosis of cancer but are looking for insurance, an insurance company is not allowed to say, well, no, your care is going to be expensive, so we're not going to cover you. I think that was a really important part of the ACA. So those factors, I think, helped patients with cancer. The other thing that the Affordable Care Act did was set something called an out-of-pocket maximum per year. So what that means is that every year, patients covered under the, under the ACA um, were not, uh, um, could not pay out-of-pocket more than a set amount. Uh, this year, it's somewhere um, between seven and $8,000 per year, for example. Um, now, a lot of people take that as um, something very good, and I think it is important to set that maximum that a patient can pay out of pocket, but the challenge is seven dollars to $8,000 is still a lot of money for a lot of people, Sure. and I think, I think a lot more could have been done there. So a lot of positives, um, but a lot of room for improvement, I think. So maybe we could dive down a little bit deeper there. You reiterated some really positive impacts around increased access. I mean, 25 million people, that's a lot of Americans who now have access to insurance. And um, another ramification that you mentioned was that um, insurers now can't deny coverage, which you're right. That's crucially important to individuals with chronic diseases like cancer. And then that out-of-pocket minimum, which or maximum rather, which you mentioned has some positive and and negative ramifications, because that, that is still a, a lot of money. Um, one of the questions that I have around the ACA would be, are there impacts of the ACA on how long patients wait from when they are diagnosed to the initiation of treatment? And are there, are, have there been changes or are there, are there places where you saw need where the ACA uh, may have impacted those areas? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's a really important question. And that re relates directly back to um, this uh, important study that was presented at the uh, oncology annual meeting last year that I'd mentioned earlier. So one other part of the Affordable Care Act that really hasn't gotten um, mentioned enough, I think, is... Um, the part that's related to Medicaid eligibility expansion. So Medicaid is, insur is government insurance for um, low-income people, okay? And um, what the ACA mandated was that, um, that uh, more people should be eligible for Medicaid, meaning the income thresholds um, should, be, uh, should be a little bit higher so that um, more people can get on to Medicaid, even, because these are mostly people who wouldn't be able to afford um, other types of insurance. 
Um, and the ACA said, look, this has got to happen at the level of the state. Um, a couple of years later, the Supreme Court ruled that actually that part is unconstitutional and the states don't have to pass what's called Medicaid expansion uh, for short if they don't want to. Um, so as of today, if my numbers are correct, I think 37 states have passed Medicaid expansion. So they've increased um, the eligibility threshold for Medicaid, allowing more people to get coverage, um, while the remainder of states um, have not yet passed Medicaid expansion, uh, expansion. And so what that has set up is this sort of natural experiment where you've got some states that have more coverage and some states that don't. And then you can look at differences in outcomes uh, between those states. So it's not perfect by any means, but you can see how you can do sort of a comparison now. One of the comparisons that have been done recently and was presented at the study last year was time to starting cancer treatment. Follow me so far? Yeah, absolutely. And and also, this is a terrible experiment. I mean, <laughs> it's a it's terrible that this experiment is happening. Um, but can dive into that a little more, but but yeah, absolutely. Let, yeah. Let's let's keep on. Sure. Okay. So so what this study did was basically look at a comparison of um, patients who who had access to Medicaid expansion versus those who didn't, and looked at how quickly they started cancer treatment after a diagnosis, and looked at what 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 um, predicted whether or not they would start treatment later. And a sad but important finding was that um, African-Americans, regardless, were more likely to experience a delay to starting treatment, meaning if you're black, you're more likely to start treatment later than if you were not black. The second important finding was that in states where Medicaid expansion happened, that disparity in race disappeared. Um, and so what I mean by that is that if everybody has equal access to health care, particularly low-income patients, um, then that disparity goes away, which tells me that a lot of that disparity has to do with access to health care. And that's a very important finding. So based on that, what are your thoughts on next steps? Um, because the the number of states that you gave us that had expanded mm -hmm. um, versus not. Is not equal 50. <laughs> right. Is not equal 50. And so I guess right. I'm, I'm struggling to understand why not. And um, I, I'd love to hear your thoughts and what are your concerns and what are next steps that, sure. that we can take? Well, let's talk about next steps. Um, so what the study uh, found, what the investigators of the study found was that um, if you provide equal access to health care, then racial disparities can disappear in terms of how quickly you start cancer treatment. But here's the important question in my mind is, does it matter how quickly you start cancer treatment? So look, anybody who has just been diagnosed with cancer um, or you know, who has been touched by cancer in any way would instinctively say, yes, it absolutely matters. I want to start treatment as soon as possible. And I get that. But we don't actually have evidence to show us that if people start in three weeks as opposed to six weeks from diagnosis, that they end up living longer. 
or they mm-hmm. end up doing better. So that's a really important point to make is that this study didn't look at whether or not people lived longer, um, but it looked at how quickly they started treatment with, which, you know, intuitively sounds like the right thing to look at. But I think it's important to know that the evidence isn't there yet to necessarily make a connection to starting sooner and living longer. So next steps would be to begin to ask those questions. Absolutely. I think, and, and that's a really tough next step um, because even though you've got this natural experiment, um, there's so many other factors that impact how well a cancer patient does on treatment um, aside from just insurance access. Insurance access is a huge one, but there's so much else that's, that's a part of that, that being able to tweak out those differences and really isolate the one factor that makes the biggest difference is really hard um, when it comes to well-designed research. All right. So thank you. It was a great primer on where we are with the ACA and there's an impact on disparities. And then how do we get together as a community to ask the really complex questions of how can we continue to impact patient care? Well, you know, I, I think this question of, like, how do we get together as, as a community to impact patient care is, uh, I think the answer to that is awareness first. And so ACS, uh, American Cancer Society, plays a big role in a, awareness. And I would love to, and I think this is happening already to some degree, this awareness around the financial um, struggles that patients face, even if they have insurance. Um, and how cost impacts quality of care, how access to insurance and healthcare impacts how well people do. You know, beating, continuously beating on that drum to make sure that patients have a voice around that topic is really important to me and is a really important ongoing, ongoing and next step for me. So how do we give patients those voices? The, some of the things you mentioned are things that I've never thought about. Um, when we, you were just trying to share with me what is financial toxicity um, mm-hmm. around the patient experience. I mean, you mentioned some things that seem pretty obvious with or without insurance, you know, drugs, mm-hmm. co-pays. I, I've never thought about parking. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't think a ton about um, the minutia of finding child care or elder care if you're a caregiver and you need to go for your... So how do we, how do we begin to understand and then give voice to all the different pieces of that puzzle of financial toxicity that patients face. Yeah, so right now there's a, um, uh, a patient with cancer listening to, listening to us um, screaming into her AirPods <laughs> that yes, parking is important um, and it's these small costs that add up um, and these small burdens that add up. Um, and I think that's the challenge is that there is not just one solution. There's not one answer. Unfortunately, it's not just better insurance. Right. Um, it's not just lower price drugs. Um, what I, what I, when I talk about, you know, this concept of financial toxicity, the way I think about it is that there's no one bad guy. Um, there's no one bad guy that is responsible for this problem. Um, we are all a part of it. Um, we have all, um, contributed to it in, in some way, and the person that's losing the most out of it, obviously, is the patient. So if there's not just one bad guy, mm-hmm. there's also not just going to be one solution. So yeah. it does seem to be a discussion that needs to be elevated at the level of 
community hospitals, cancer centers. I mean, certainly uh, groups like the ASCO meeting that you were where you were speaking, but it's one of those things that's going to take a group effort in order to begin to, I guess, understand on an individual basis where patients are struggling and where we as our separate entities can help. Oh, uh, absolutely, Susanna. I mean, I think the, um, the the way I think about intervention and intervening or trying to solve this problem of financial toxicity, I think of it as a multi-level solution. So we have to see solutions at the level of the government, the pharmaceutical industry, the insurance industry, health systems, and physicians and 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 clinicians, and and that has to happen almost simultaneously. Um, and there's there's multiple interventions at each of those levels that you know we can talk about, but um, one intervention's not going to fix it. I don't want to take too much more of your time, but I do want to use that piece as a segue where you're sharing that. Yeah, it's going to take uh, government and institutions and uh, individuals to to all play a role in impacting patients toxicity mm -hmm. when we think about care and I, I want to segue from that to I know the American Cancer Society has been a part of the funding that you've received but we're just one part right it takes, it takes a lot of different funding sources in order for a researcher to um, uh, really make the impact that they they want to make, but I'd love to know if there's a particular way the ACS has impacted uh, your career. Yeah, so um, I completely credit uh, the ACS and the funding that I received from the ACS for you know any small um, contribution um, that I've made to science in my career. Um, I received a five-year grant from the ACS right at the start of my career. Um, it was a career development award, so this is a grant that's given to uh, very junior investigators who are just starting out, and it's a big risk um, for an organization like the ACS to say, sure, we'll give you our money, and we think you can do something good with it. Um, the time that I got um, that um, investment from the ACS um, really gave me the time and the, the resources that I needed to think about this problem, to figure out what I could do next. Um, and there's, there's no way that um, I could have done what I have at this point without that support. So I am forever grateful. And I'm not just saying that because I'm talking to you. <laughs> well, good to know. We, um, we do think that um, you have done something good with the ACS investment and and you continue to do so, and we're really grateful well, for that. I, have, I think I just have got one last question. Um, I know you're involved in patient care, and you spend a lot of time thinking about issues that impact patients. A lot of our listeners are cancer patients and folks who love them and support them. Is there a message you'd like to share with this group of listeners? Yeah. Um, and I think it's a message that I share with my patients um, every day when I see them in clinic is that, look, my, my job um, is not to sugarcoat. I think it's important for a patient with cancer to know everything they're up against. Um, and it's not easy by any means. But my second job is then to be optimistic. And I see so much to be optimistic about uh, that's happening um, on a almost weekly basis with new developments and new ways to treat cancer and new, pa new ways to support the patient and 
and whoever else has been touched by by cancer that um, we you know we're making tremendous progress and I'm, I remain and will always remain optimistic about that. Well, thank you, Yusuf. We're we're optimistic as well, and a lot of that optimism comes from some really fabulous people like you who are on the front lines. So, thank you for all you do. We'll let you get back to it. Okay. Well, it has been my pleasure to talk to you.